You are entering the Freedom Hut. The left has gone mad. They are now supporting an abortion bill in Virginia that is nothing short of infanticide. We have to confront this evil head on. We'll talk about that and then move into a discussion of socialism and single payer health care. The Democrats are embracing both ideas. We have to fight back and win. That's all coming up. This is the Buck Sexton Show, where the mission mission is to decode what really matters with actionable intelligence. Make no mistake. America. You're a great American again. The Buck Sexton Show begins. Former CIA analyst. Former member of the NYPD. Buck Sexton. It is Buck Sexton. Now. Welcome to the Buck Sexton Show, everybody. A lot of of things to cover today, a lot of policy to discuss. Uh, We will get into the latest on the immigration debate. I was very gratified to see that the president uh, shared my editorial from The Hill earlier this week on immigration and talking about the the scams and the uh, dishonesty around the asylum process, the need for a border wall, the crisis at the border. So word, word is getting out. And if you haven't read that piece, I think it's worth it's worth your time. And I was very uh, I was very pleased that the president it was very gratifying. The president, and the White House official Twitter accounts both shared it. Um, we'll also discuss uh, socialism and, and this this huge, huge fight that's coming over Medicare for all, which is going to be the central promise other than anti-Trumpism and getting rid of Trump. The central promise of the Democrats in 2020 is going to be Medicare for all. It was originally health care coverage for everybody. Now it's just going to be health care for everybody that somebody else will pay for. Uh, this is disastrous on a number of levels, but it is a very real threat. I do think a lot of a lot of the, the conservatives out there think that we can just say, ha ha, socialism, socialism stinks. Nobody wants it. And that will be sufficient. It will not be sufficient. The polls are showing. The conversations are shifting. People are fed up with what is a lot of government intrusion and distortion in the healthcare market to begin with. And then there's this impulse to just say, fine, l- let's just have the government in charge of all of it. We, we and, and this all along was why Obamacare was meant to put us in this position. All along, this was the goal. We knew it. We weren't able to stop them. We're going to have to win on the battlefield of ideas going ahead on this, or else you're just going to wait you know, 18 months for the for the hip replacement you need. You're, you're going to wait eight weeks to see a specialist for, a, you know, whatever, whatever infection or problem you have. And it's not going to be a very good doctor. You're going to see whoever they, whoever they, the government tells you to see. That's going to be the reality. Um, but I wanted to start with something else today. Uh, this is, this is one of those topics where I feel an obligation to talk about it, even though I know that it's not necessarily... A subject matter that after a long day at the office, a lot of people are going to want to dive into and hear about. And, and I understand that. And and look, you know, I, I I do the best that I can every single day to make sure that I, I make maximum usage of our time together. I spend my whole day preparing for these hours that I get with all of you. And so some days the topics are going to be um, hard, hard to talk about, and I'm sure hard to listen to. And today is one of those days. We are confronting evil in this country now as a matter of partisan policy. The Democratic Party has openly embraced evil. 
I, I'm not saying, uh, you know, they're they're making bad decisions on some matter of economic policy. I'm not. I'm saying that they have now crossed over into open, clear immorality. Democrats have legalized infanticide. That is not an overstatement. That is a straightforward understanding, a straightforward application of the laws that they are supporting. First in the state of in the state of New York, and then today we find out more in the state of Virginia. This cannot be allowed to stand. Um, this cannot continue. This is a stain on this country. It is the single greatest moral stain on this country today. You have Governor Ralph Northam of Virginia, who was on a radio show today, and it was one of the more chilling interviews of any kind I have ever heard. I mean, I'm somebody who, in his professional capacity as a counterterrorism analyst, used to have to listen to, watch, and and see some pretty terrible things. Uh, when you're dealing in the world of al-Qaeda and, and al-Qaeda in Iraq and different terrorist groups, you see and hear horrible things that happen that are happening to people and that have happened to people. And you see the aftermath of different strikes, of IED strikes, and, you know, it's, it's stuff that stays with you. This conversation, casual, calm conversation that the governor of Virginia, Ralph Northam, had on this radio show today is, uh, is chilling. It's the kind of discussion that I think many of you will remember for quite a while afterwards, not because of the, of the energy or the, there was nothing profound it's actually the banality of evil for your ears. Play clip nine. There was a very contentious committee hearing yesterday when Fairfax County Delegate Kathy Tran made her case for lifting restrictions on third trimester abortions, as well as other restrictions now in place. And she was pressed by a Republican delegate about whether her bill would permit an abortion, even as a woman is essentially dilating, ready to give birth. And she answered that it would permit an abortion at that stage of labor. Do you support her measure and, and explain her answer. When we talk about third trimester uh, abortions, these are done uh, with the consent uh, of obviously the, the mother, with the consent uh, of the physicians, more than one physician, by the way. Um, and it's done in cases where there may be severe deformities, there may be a, a, a fetus that's non-viable. So in this particular example, uh, if a mother is in labor, I can tell you exactly uh, what would happen. Um, the infant would be delivered. Uh, the infant would be kept comfortable. Uh, the infant would be resuscitated if, if that's what the uh, mother and the family desired. And then a discussion would ensue between the physicians and the mothers. We want the government not to be involved in these types of decisions. We want the decision to be made by uh, the, the mothers and their providers. And, and this is why, Julie, that legislators, most of whom are men, by the way, shouldn't be telling a woman what she should and shouldn't be doing with her body. That's the most grotesquely immoral and disgusting thing a politician has said in my lifetime. Although obviously Cuomo's support for a similar bill in New York is, is right up there. 
I, I, we can just walk through what was said. This is the governor of Virginia, the, the, the chief elected official of the state of Virginia. And he says that an infant under the law that Democrats are, are putting forward here in this abortion bill, under the law, an infant would be delivered. So the, now we're talking about baby outside the womb. That is what delivered means. A baby delivered outside the womb would be made comfortable, which means that obviously there's an understanding that this is a person who feels pain, who has a fully functioning brain, central nervous system, heart, lung, eyes, little fingers, little feet, a baby. And then once they had made the delivered infant comfortable, they would have a they they would have the right to resuscitate or not resuscitate and figure out what they want to do with the baby. He is talking about killing a baby outside the womb and saying it is legal. There's no wiggle room on this. There is no uh, no good faith two sides. This is infanticide. This is killing babies. And we, there there's a feeling here of of tremendous regression. I've mentioned to you before that my my college advisor, thesis advisor, Professor Hadley Arkes, who was the only only outspoken conservative on my whole college campus, and and was somebody that played a very important role in my the development of my my own politics and political philosophy. He was part of the early drafting of what's known as the Born Alive Infants Protection Act. I've told people what that bill says. It's a federal. It's it's a federal law. Which, by the way, I believe this this must be in violation of it. I'm, I'm assuming this will be char- uh, this will be challenged in the courts. I certainly hope it is. It will be challenged in this life or the next. I can assure you that. But Hadley, or Professor Arkes, he lets me call him Hadley now. Uh, he he had to write or, or or put forward that if nothing else, the abortion extremist should have to consent to keeping a baby outside the womb that is alive, alive, because under the, pre, under the understanding post-Roe v. Wade that persisted in the courts, the right to an abortion was the right to a dead baby, even if during the abortion procedure, and this has happened, there are people who have survived botched abortions, the baby came out and was still alive. They had to pass a bill, by the way. You want to know who did not vote in favor of that bill in the state assembly. Got a pass on this one, of course, because he wanted that that uh, Planned Parenthood money when he was running. Barack Obama as a state senator. One of very few, I would note. But he knew, you want to be in with the Democrats, you want to be part of the left, and really have them fully behind you, you have to be an abortion extremist. All nine months. This is all nine months of the pregnancy up to and beyond the moment of, of, of birth. How could anybody say this? How could anybody make this argument? The most vulnerable people in our society, the most precious thing we have in our society is life. The most vulnerable people in our society are, are infants. And Democrats are spending their time and resources and power to pass laws that allow people, and I know that people that there will be this. Oh, it's it's very rare. Well, 
it's very rare is not a justification for any other kind of murder. So I need to know why they think it's very rare would be a justification for this kind of murder. This is not, there's no gray area here. There, this is black and white. Democrats believe that a woman has the right to kill her own baby. That is what this says. I'm not exaggerating. I am not taking it out of context. They have fallen into an abyss of darkness. All of the echo chambers of their cowardly, disgraceful media, all these self-important, self-involved millionaires and billionaires running these propaganda organs, all these women's rights activist groups and, and this whole the propaganda of postmodern femi- postmodernist feminism and, and the, the, the left wing manipulation of words and the use of emotion to try to tell people, force people, convince them to abandon the most fundamental moral concepts in society. And in, it's working. It's working. There are a lot of days when I come in here and I get to talk to you about things that are just interesting, things that are are entertaining, enjoyable, are are you know important in the culture. But we can all we will all be fine whether it goes one way or the other. You know, we we can take a loss on some issues and sleep well at night and know that it's all going to be okay. This is not one of them. This is a declaration of war on life from the left. It is the most egregious, disgusting legislative act in my lifetime. There will be a time many years hence, I think, when we will look back on this and there will be tremendous efforts to rehabilitate what the left was really all about when it came to life and to babies and to, and they will try to rewrite this. They will have to rewrite this because this is so immoral and so grotesque that it will haunt those who supported it and certainly those who engaged in it for many, many years to come. I want to play for you when we come back, and then we will move off the topic because I honestly can't handle to talk about it much more. And I don't, you know, and I don't want to. I know you've all had a tough day, and you have a lot of things on your mind. You got other things. We got policies to talk about that are beyond this. I think this is the most important thing in the country right now. You should hear what this uh, representative in the Virginia Assembly said. I, I want you to hear what she had to say about this because I want you to know that this is not some. Oh, right wing talk radio propaganda, whatever. I am expl- I am explaining to you what this law says and does, and what the people who are supporting it want to make legal. Not and not extending beyond what they themselves would say. We'll come back. We'll do that, and then we'll talk socialism, healthcare. We'll get into our our usual rhythm, but um, we have to get through this one together. We'll be right back. If you're in a relationship, there are a couple of important dates that require roses, birthdays, anniversaries, Valentine's is around the corner. So when you're looking for the biggest and best quality roses out there, check out my friends at 1-800-Flowers.com. Right now, you can get 18 red roses for $29.99 or upgrade to 24 red roses for $10 more. This is an unbelievable offer from 1-800-Flowers. 18 red roses for $29.99 or upgrade to 24 red roses for only $10 more. Roses from 1-800-Flowers are picked at their peak and shipped overnight to ensure freshness and her amazement. To order 18 red roses for $29.99 or upgrade to 24 red roses for only $10 more, go to 1-800-Flowers.com. 
com slash buck again 18 red roses for 29.99 or upgrade to 24 red roses for ten dollars more that's 1-800-flowers.com slash buck again 1-800-flowers.com slash buck hurry offer expires wednesday and i want to pass this year a constitutional amendment that writes into the Constitution a provision protecting a woman's right to control her own reproductive health. Look at the tortured we'll language. A woman's right to control reproductive health. Just say a right to an abortion for all nine months of a pregnancy. That's what you're doing there up in New York. And now in Virginia, too, this is what the this is what the conversation was on the floor of the Virginia, uh, Virginia legislature play um, eight. How late in the third trimester could a, a physician perform an abortion if he indicated it would impair the mental health of the of the woman? Or physical health. OK. OK. I'm, I'm uh, talking about the mental health. So, I mean, through the third trimester, the third trimester goes all the way up to 40 weeks. Okay, but to the end of the third trimester. Yep, I don't think we have a limit in the bill. So, um, where it's obvious that a woman is about to give birth, she has physical signs of, of, that she is about to give a birth, would that still be a point at which she could request an abortion if she was so certified? She's dilating. Uh, Mr. Chairman, that would be a, you know, a decision that the doctor... The physician and the woman. I understand that. that. I'm asking point. if your bill allows that. My bill would allow that. Yes. Is there any way I have misrepresented what is going on here? I mean, I ask you that in, in all honesty. Here's the woman putting forth the bill for the Virginia legislature. She is asked, can you kill the baby while it is being born under your bill? She says my bill would allow that. Woman's water breaks. She's giving birth. I decide or you know, she decides she doesn't want to do it anymore. She can say, doctor, terminate this pregnancy. Oh, but, but the baby's going to be out. It's I can already see its head. No, doctor, terminate the pregnancy. OK, well, if you say it's going to hurt your mental health, you can tell me that this will be rare. I don't care. It is murder. It is legal grounds for infanticide. It is a blight on this country that any state, any legislature, quite honestly, any human being would be okay with this. Would The fact that they're advocating for it, that they're cheering, that they're proud. My friends, I do not say this lightly. There are some issues where it is a political difference between left and right, and there are good faiths are arguments on both sides. This is not one of those issues. The left, the Democrats, have sided with Satan. They are wrong. This is evil. This is evil. We must oppose this and we must beat them at the ballot box to stop them from being able to implement what is an obviously barbaric policy. Here's an interesting thing that's happening. The whole idea of how does she identify? Does she identify as an African-American? Did you see the thing going on on social media? Did she yeah, identify as a person of color? Because when asked by Jake if she, you know, as a black woman, she goes as a person of color. You remember that whole thing with Obama? Yeah. Is he black enough? That is different than identifying. But it's just an interesting conversation to me that I hear people talking about. This is what they spend time on at CNN. 
This is where their focus is. You know, they're they're wanting to talk about how Kamala Harris. I mean, she's obviously a, a, a woman of color. Does she identify as black? I mean, I, I think with most people, she registers as black. But this is a this is a conversation of sorts. I don't think it's a particularly important one. But how, how does one quantify or qualify blackness in this country? Uh, if someone is of of, uh, you know, dual ethnicity, if you will, mother and father are, are from different ethnic backgrounds. Do, do you pick? Do you you know, there is an identification. There is an, a self identity process in this whole thing. It's 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 dizzying when you try to put all this stuff together and, and try to understand where they're going with all of it. But that's you know, that's and I know you say, oh, Buck, that's just one clip. But no, I mean, today there was a focus on. Howard Schultz not knowing the price of Cheerios. Oh, he's an, he's an uh, out-of-touch billionaire. doesn't know the price of Cheerios. Um, I'm about a billion dollars short of being a billionaire, and I don't know the price of Cheerios off the top of my head because I don't eat them. Yeah, I mean, I guess it's like three or four bucks maybe, but maybe it's six, and it depends on where you shop. I don't know. John, what do you know what the price of Cheerios? This was a big story today for the media. Four or five bucks? Okay. Exactly, John. Depends on the size. See, John knows. John knows his Cheerios. Uh, honey nut is obviously the way to go if you're going to get Cheerios. But I think plain Cheerios are gluten-free, but I'd have to check. But that's the kind of just nonsense that they focus on when and I, I played for you. What, what? And I'm not going to go back and talk more about what we started the show with because it honestly, it upsets me. It upsets me to talk about it. It upsets me to think about it. Um, but we can't move away from hard topics just because there's there's other things on the horizon. Kamala Harris, not a strong rollout for, I would say, a certainly a top three Democrat nominee contender, not not going so well so far. Uh, and and here's one that we didn't get to yesterday. And, and here's part of the conversation that I think is going to be harder for Democrats to make seem OK to the general electorate. I mean, the, the Democrats Biggest problem in running against Republicans is that their their only job is to not be lunatics and they can't do that job. If the Democrats came forward and they said, you know, we're going to fix health care. We're going to respect people's individual rights. We're not going to try to take your guns away. We're not going to push climate change lunacy on you. We want to fix some aspects of Obamacare. We we will. Uh, we, we want DACA and amnesty, which I'm obviously very opposed to. But, you know, we're willing to do some things at the border to to tamp down on this false amnesty claims and also on the illegal crossings with the fence. You know, if they just triangulated a little bit, a little bit. I would be worried. I would know that they were probably doing a head fake, that they were lying. I mean, I'm not saying that the Democrats would cease to be Democrats, but instead of doing that, instead of presenting themselves as better at governance and more reasonable than the Republicans, what do they do? The crazy talk. Play four. The Play plan four, was a, please. what we would call today a domestic terrorist group. Why? Why, why would we call them domestic terrorist group? Because they tried to use fear and force to change political environment. And what was the motivation for the use of fear and force? It was based on race and ethnicity. Right. Are you aware of the perception of um, many about how the, the, the power and the discretion at ICE is being used to enforce the laws? And do you see any parallels? Parallels, huh, to a domestic terrorist group, ICE, Immigrations and Customs Enforcement. 
I got to tell you, that's why during the shutdown, it made me so frustrated. All these Democrats were saying, oh, the poor Border Patrol people, they're working without pay. Immigrations and Customs Enforcement, they're working without pay. I'm sitting here. I'm like, uh, hold on a second. Yeah, they should get paid. And I feel badly for those families, but they got their their back pay is now secured. They'll be all right. But Democrats are the ones that say that they're acting like Nazis, that Border Patrol is like a bunch of Nazis, that ICE is setting up concentration camps. They're the ones that undermine the core mission of those agencies at the first sign of any political advantage from it. They throw ICE and Border Patrol under the bus so fast their their heads don't even have time to spin. And then they want to be, oh, we're so worried about these about our brave federal employees. We got to go to a quick break. I'll be back. Oh, in one minute. I'm sorry. I thought we had a sorry about that team. I was like, John, what's going on here? Yeah, I'm not done yet. I have not yet begun to radio. Uh, So this is what you this is what you've got going on. I mean, you have Kamala Harris, who is somebody she's just like Hillary and that she's going to say whatever she has to say in the moment to appeal to whoever she has to appeal to. And eventually, I think it all will collapse. The media is going to try to prop her up and hold her up and 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 convince people through all their little propaganda magic tricks that she's a, a centrist, a technocrat and, you know, sterling resume, great personal story. The reality is she's a completely uh, opportunistic politician who doesn't seem to have much of, of, an, of an ethical core uh, in her policies. I'm not talking about personal stuff. And uh, it's just not not a real matchup for the Trumpster. That's the good news for us. But we got more on socialism and health care. Big health care deep dive coming up next hour. Stay with me. I, I think you could never afford that. You're talking about trillions of dollars. Uh, I think you can have Medicare for all for people that are uncovered. But because that's a smaller group and a lot of them are taking care of Medicaid already, Medicare. Uh, but uh, to replace the entire private system uh, where companies provide health care for their employees would bankrupt us for a very long time. That's not correct. That's not American. What's next? What, what industry are we going to abolish next? That alone would wipe out millions of jobs of Americans. And that is the kind of extreme policy that is not a policy that I agree with. Mm-hmm. And if you take immigration, you take health care, what we have is extremes on both, right, both sides not representing the large majority of Americans who don't have a voice. The billionaires on the left... Causing a little bit of, uh, of heartburn there for the progressives. You have Bloomberg, who say what you will about him, and he's a total, you know, he's a total nincompoop on guns, and he's he's Mr. Nanny State with the no drinking big sodas. And, uh, you know, he, he obviously he's, he's a big government guy, although I will say the problem with Bloomberg, and I remember I, I, as much as I, I love Glenn Beck, I remember he looked at me once like I was crazy because I was a New York City resident for m- many years. I actually worked for Bloomberg at the NYPD. And I said, you know, you got to be, Bloomberg is what you really got to worry about because with Bloomberg, you get efficient, efficient government services, clean streets, the train's running on time, but he won't let you have big sodas and wants to take your guns away. You know, the, the 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 Detroit model, the Baltimore model of a Democrat lefty who just doesn't know what the heck they're doing and tries to pile on all the progressive, 
you know, nanny state social justice nonsense. Yeah, anybody with with, you know, two brain cells to rub together can come up with why that's a bad idea. The real problem from our perspective is the Bloombergian uh, effective provision of government services and reasonably efficient uh, government activity that is nanny state like that's when you get, you know, that's when you all of a sudden have people saying, well, I don't mind being Denmark. We're going to talk more about Denmark and healthcare and stuff, by the way, in just a few moments here. But the problem that Bloomberg and Schultz, who was the second guy there, they're both talking about Kamala Harris saying we need Medicare for all. The problem that they pose for the Democrat Party right now is that here are two guys who are both self-made. Oh, man, they were going after Schultz. Schultz grew up in a housing project and started out with one coffee shop and ended up running a multi-billion dollar empire. Uh, as much as I don't like Starbucks is, uh, you know, it, it's politics. It's it is a gr- it is a great brand and it's an incredible success story. And, you know, you got to give props where they're due. And Bloomberg, obviously, was a finance guy who came up with the Bloomberg terminal idea and he became a self-made billionaire. I think he's the richest person in New York State. So these are two guys who understand for whatever their politics may be. They understand business. They understand numbers, finances and a balance sheet. No question. You cannot question either of them when it comes to their ability on those matters. And they are staring, staring across the table at the Warren Ocasio-Cortez, Bernie Sanders, Kamala Harris fantasy land. I mean, just absolute fantasy land. And they're saying, I'm sorry, this isn't going to work. This would be catastrophic. The costs would be catastrophic for the economy. You're talking about tens of trillions of dollars of additional government spending. That you're not going to be able to come up with the tax revenue to pay for this. We're already going a trillion dollars a year into debt. We're already spending too much right now. Well, we're going to start going three trillion in debt, four trillion in debt. This is how, on a yearly basis, this is how we would find ourselves in a circumstance where our debt, uh, our debt service obligations becomes too high crowds out other government spending could become the biggest single item in the budget if we don't watch ourselves. So we'll just be paying taxes to pay the interest on the money that we've already spent. You know, this this is how you get into scary territory, right? This is like if you're an individual and all you can pay are your finance charges and your credit card bills, that's when the credit cards companies got you. Because now you're just paying them money for the money you've already spent. You're not even getting rid of that balance. You're you're on a treadmill and they're, they're the ones with the whip saying, you know, mush, mush, go faster. Um, that's what our government will, will be doing if we allow the debt to get so large, the debt service payments crowd out the rest of it. And we're, we're on track for that to happen. If we do this, I mean, if you, if you have single payer for health care, it's going to just, it'll blow up, the, blow up the budget, which also means that you know, we won't be able to, to borrow money. Our treasury bonds will become a problem. And, and eventually we, we, we risk not being the reserve currency for all global commerce. And that becomes a huge problem. You know, our overspending is a national security vulnerability. China's already aware of this and looking to take advantage of it long term. This is not just a function of, oh, these people have some nice ideas. This matters for future generations it matters for the health of this country financially and health-wise. 
But these billionaires, they are not welcome in this conversation on the left right now because people want the Santa Claus health care talk. They want to be told that they're going to have brilliant, perfect, wonderful, free health care that only the super rich people are going to pay for. And I'm here to say that what Bloomberg and Schultz are saying is there's not enough money. They are making a promise that they cannot deliver on. Keep in mind, the wall is not a promise that Trump has made that he can't deliver on. Democrats are refusing to let him deliver on it. You could have 60 Democrat votes in the Senate, solid Democrat majority, you know, in the House, call it, you know, a 50 vote Democrat majority in the House and the Democrat presidency. They would not be able to deliver on this plan. They might try. And we're going to talk to Ovik Roy here in a few minutes about what that would look like. But they will not be able to do this without catastrophic effects on the economy. Meanwhile, AOC, Ocasio-Cortez, is out there just just openly promoting this. And, And it really comes down to not, you're going to see more of this. It's not just about healthcare, healthcare expenditures, the cost and all that. It's also increasingly just about what's fair. Right. This is this is very much an Obama word. Right. What's fair? Pay your fair share. This is about justice. This is about people should have free stuff because there are too many rich people who have too much stuff. This is that's not an economic argument. That's a social justice argument. And that's the when it comes to eliminating private health insurance, which Kamala Harris said she wants. That is the argument that increasingly is going to be made by the left going forward. It's not even about the numbers. Just do it because it's the right thing to do, they will say. Play clip two. Do you support uh, Senator Harris's proposal last night, uh, Medicare for all and eliminate private insurance companies? You know, I think that uh, I think that's the, the direction that we absolutely need to go in. Medicare for all would save the American people a very large amount of money. Capitalism has not always existed in the world, and it will not always exist in the world. Maybe this idea of idealizing this outcome of maybe one day you too can be a billionaire Mm. and own more than millions of families combined Mm. is not an aspirational Mm. or good thing. Mm. How much is... At how at what level are we really just living in excess and what kind of society do we want to live in? Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez wants people to be poorer because we'll all feel better if we're all a little poorer. That's what this really comes down to. It is the philosophy of pulling people down so that the people below them feel more comfortable with where they are. It's not going to make their lives better. It's not going to make things better for them. This is very dangerous, and it is being more and more openly embraced on the left. This is going to be the argument that you hear in the Democrat primary, and I think even when the Democrat candidate is finally decided. And... You know, Schultz, who says he might run third party and the left is freaking out because they all they hear third party and all they can think about is four more years of Trump, which makes their heads explode. Schultz is speaking truth on this stuff. And I, I you know, I, I'm not even getting into his policies that I disagree with. And I'm sure he's a climate change nut and all that other stuff. Democratic Party has radicalized to the left in a lot of ways, as we've been discussing this hour. But here's what Schultz said. Play six. 
If you kind of look at the tea leaves today, it appears that the Democratic Party is shifting far, far left with very strong progressive ideas, the likes of which we should talk about. Yep. His assessment is correct. The Democrat Party is far left, especially now on the issue of, of health care. They're more open about it than ever. What is the truth of single payer? What would it mean to have Medicare for all? My friend Ovik Roy, who is a fantastic expert on this, he's going to join us for a deep dive into this. If you listen to this interview, you will know more than 90%, probably 95% of the people who go on TV and talk about it. Listen to what my man Ovik has to say. That's coming up. Hiring can be time-consuming. We've had to do a lot of it at Hill TV. So I've been through this process. And, you know, you post a job to these different online boards. You'll get a lot of the wrong resumes from the wrong people when you really just need something to sort through the resumes and find people that have the right skills and expertise for the job opening that you've got, right? So those job sites that overwhelm you with the wrong resumes, they're not smart. That's why you should do the smart thing, which is what I did, and go to ZipRecruiter.com slash buck. Unlike other job sites, ZipRecruiter finds qualified candidates for you. Its powerful matching technology scans thousands of resumes to identify people with the right skills, education, and experience and actively invites them to apply to your job so you get qualified candidates fast. It's no wonder that ZipRecruiter is rated number one by employers in the U.S. And right now, my listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free at this exclusive web address, ZipRecruiter.com buck. If you love the show, team, show your support. Go to ZipRecruiter.com slash Buck. Again, ZipRecruiter.com slash Buck. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. If we're talking about tearing down the healthcare system and starting over, then I think every option needs to be on the table, and single-payer sure ought to be at the top of the list. Everyone, all, should receive the health care they need, regardless of where they live, their income, or their zip code. This is about a right, not about a privilege for a few. And let's be clear, it is not only about what is the right thing to do morally and ethically. It's also smart in terms of the fiscal impact. A single-payer health care system would save the average family significant sums of money. And what Republicans sometimes do is confuse the issue. And they say, well, you're going to pay more in taxes. What they forget to tell you is that if you are a family of four, now paying fifteen dollars or $20,000 a year in private health insurance, you're not going to be paying that at all. The new hotness on the progressive left, single payer. Gosh, I'm old enough to remember just a few years back when to say that Obamacare was, was really just a way of getting to single payer was some kind of mean, unfair, maybe even racist comment. But here we are. Turns out that was true all along. What is the truth? of what's happening here with single payer. Is it a good idea? I want to I want to tackle some of these statements and I brought on an expert to help us do that. We have Ovik Roy with us, who, by the way, has an MD on top of being a generally brilliant and insightful fellow. He's also the president of the Foundation for Research on Equal Opportunity to see what he's up to. Free op, F-R-E-E-O-P-P uh, dot org. Free op, O-P-P, uh, you know me, dot org. Um, <laughs> Mr. Mr. Roy, good to have you. Hey man, how's it going? Um, I'm good. I'm good. Uh, so, let's start with this. What is your just your your first reaction when you hear Bernie Sanders, Kamala Harris, Warren, etc.? They're all saying single payer Medicare for all, or or at least they're saying Medicare for all. You say what to this? What I say, Buck, is that only half of what they're saying is crazy, 
And single payer is a greater threat than I think a lot of us realize. That's that's pretty that's pretty disconcerting. Walk me through. Let, let, let's take some of these some of these big statements that they make, and you tell me the truth of it or, or where it comes on. For example, here, here's sure. you know I, I get a little frustrated because a lot of my Republican friends, a lot of my conservative brothers and sisters, will just say um, that Venezuela is all you need to say. Right. Look at Venezuela, socialism, Venezuela. And while Venezuela is instructive in some ways, obviously the left, the progressives, they just say, OK, what about Denmark? What about Sweden? Sweden does it. Why can't we? The UK does it. Why can't we? What do you say to that, Ovik? Yeah. And, and th- there again, that's the part that's not crazy. Here's an amazing statistic, but that a lot of your listeners won't know. And that is that government spending on healthcare, not total spending, Government spending on health care per person in the United States is higher than all but two other countries in the world. It's higher than the U.K., higher than Canada, higher than France, higher than Sweden. That's the amazing thing is our system for, for, for all the, for the good things that we have in America, our health care system is so inefficient and so expensive due largely to government policy that Government spending on health care in America per person is far greater than it is in almost every other country in the world. So when Bernie Sanders and Kamala Harris and all these people say, hey, a single-payer system like the U.K. or Canada would save us money, they're right. Now, the thing they don't tell you is that to get to that kind of savings, cost savings, from where we are today, you'd have to cut what we pay hospitals, what we pay doctors, what we pay drug companies by 50%. And no drug lobby or hospital lobby or doctor lobby is going to go for that. And so what you're eventually, what you actually are going to have in America, if you try to have single payer, is you're going to have a system in which the cost of health care is the same. It's just that the government's paying for it. And what would that do? That would increase federal spending in America over the next 10 years by $33 trillion with a T. That would increase federal spending by 71%. Total federal spending, by the way, not just the health care piece. So the problem with a single payer is a devil in the tails. If you actually do it the way that UK and Canada and all those countries do it, where there's rationing and there's restrictions and price controls and restrictions on access to high price services, yeah, you could have a, a system that costs less in terms of government spending than what we spend. Now, there's another important point, Buck, and that is government-run health care is not the only way to save money in our health care system. Market-based healthcare systems like the ones in Switzerland and Singapore spend far less than all those single-payer countries. You never hear the Democrats talk about that. And that's the theme of a lot of the work we've done at my think tank, freeop.org, where you know we have a white paper called Transcending Obamacare that details in 100 pages, for those who really care, how exactly you could transition our system, which is not a free market system, into one that is so that there's more competition, more choice and lower costs. Ovik, uh, you know, this, this is where, though, uh, we, we get caught up in in just what sounds good to people and, and what a lot of what a lot of the, the, the Democrat, the Democrats that are front runners right now are saying is effectively things aren't so bad in Canada. Why don't we do why don't we just do what what Canada does? And, and yeah, what, well, you know, and the, so well, what is the answer to that from your perspective? Why don't we just do what Canada does? Yeah, I mean, you know, if you do what Canada's basically the Canada system, the hospitals and the drug companies and the doctors are theoretically private. The insurance is a single payer system. Uh, all the insurance, there's one insurer, it's the government of Canada. Uh, the British system, by contrast, 
It's completely socialized. It's like the VA, where both the insurers and the hospitals and the doctors are all either owned by the government or employed by the government. So that's more like the East German healthcare system, the British system. So there's a, there are differences between different countries. And by the way, this is important for you to understand, not every country is single payer that has universal coverage. Universal coverage and single payer are not the same thing. For example, we have almost every American has a TV, but that, there was no single payer TV system that created that, right? We all have TVs because we like to watch TV and TV isn't that expensive to buy, right? The same could be true with health insurance. If we had a market-based system for health insurance, we would actually have health insurance that's not expensive and everyone would have it. We'd have universal coverage. So what's so great about Canada from the left standpoint? That it spends less money and that everybody has health insurance, which is a good thing. It is a good thing to, that everybody has health insurance, and it's a good thing that we spend less money. Now, here's the downside. The downside is that the way Canada does it is through waiting lists. They basically restrict your access to the latest technology. They restrict your access to uh, uh, procedures that they don't think are important. If you want to get, if you bust your knee and you need to get, you tear your ACL and you need a knee replacement in Canada, the average wait time is 14 months, or more than a year because Canada thinks that people don't really need knee replacement. So basically people have to come to America to get their knees replaced. So there are a lot of downsides to the Canadian system. But again, the point I'm trying to make here is it's not enough for conservatives to say, oh, yeah, Kamala Harris, she's crazy, Venezuela, bang, right? That is not, that's not good enough because the average family today is spending more on their hospital bills than they are in taxes. The median household in America, in terms of income, it's about $62,000. Thanks to the Republican tax cuts, their tax rate's about 13.5%. But they're spending 20% of their income all in on hospital spending. Not, and that doesn't even include the drugs and everything else. So American health care is way too expensive, and conservatives have to have positive solutions that reduce the cost of health care in America. So, so the costs are too high. I mean, so you would agree with it. So th- this is this is not just a perception. Like people get into no. it. Go ahead. No, I was just saying no. It's not a perception. It's absolutely a fact. Not only are they too high, they are extreme. Uh, healthcare prices in America are extreme compared to other countries, and and it's not because of the market. The market isn't the reason why prices are extreme. Crony capitalism is the reason why prices are extreme in America. Government policies that create monopolies, that create barriers to competition, that restrict choice, and remove the everyday patient from the cost and price and value of, of the health care that he buys. You know, as you know, Buck, so many of us, most of us, in fact, 90% of Americans don't buy their own health insurance. It's bought on their behalf by somebody else, whether it's their employer or the government. That's one of the most important things we want to fix. If you, have to have a market, if you want to have a market-based system, people have to start buying their own insurance. And they have to be free to buy the kind of insurance that they want, not the kind of insurance that the federal government tells them to buy. You know, you also hear, Ovik, that there's that there, that there will get uh, that we get worse. This is one of the big talking points from the left of the time. We have worse outcomes and spend more money. You've already addressed that we are spending more money. We spend a lot. The government spends a lot of money on health care in this country and the American people spend a lot of money on health care. But how do you address the the outcomes issue? Yeah, it's true that in aggregate. Uh, in certain ways, we have worse outcomes, like our life expectancy is lower and things like that. You have to kind of unpack those statistics, because if you look at the white population in the United States, it's pretty comparable to Europe in terms of health outcomes. Where, we're, where we really fail is with racial and ethnic minorities, particularly blacks. And obviously, 
The reason why that's the case is not because of the healthcare system necessarily. It's about the broader, the legacy of slavery and segregation and, and the, the, the poverty that a lot of uh, urban blacks find themselves in. So that's like, so, you know, the whole thing about health outcomes, it's, it's, it's a complicated subject because how much of what we call health insurance relates to the reasons why uh, low-income minorities struggle in America. It's, well, it's, and also it, we, we have we do have higher rates of obesity, type two bi- yeah. diabetes, heart conditions, yeah. and those are diseases generally diseases of lifestyle, right? So, right. and Americans are noticeably less healthy. This is the one thing where Europeans, I think, do this in soccer. Europeans are better than us. Um, but whatever, we get to eat better, more delicious cheeseburgers. Ovik, can we hold you through the breaks? I got a few more questions. I want to, I want to take the Ovik arsenal and make it my own, so that when I have to go talk to Libs on this one, I can crush them. Uh, everywhere we're talking to Ovik Roy, he is the man on this issue. He's the president for the Foundation for Research on Equal Opportunity, FreeUp.org. We'll be right back. Morning coffee is an American institution. It's more American than apple pie. And unlike apple pie, you actually needed to get your day started if you're me. That's why I always kick it off the right way with the most freedom-loving, patriotic coffee on the market, Black Rifle Coffee. This is how I get my day going. It's how I get my day going even in the afternoon after I've started off in the morning because Black Rifle is fuel for what you need every day, okay? Black Rifle gives a portion of their sales to veteran and first responder causes And it's delicious coffee, which is what's really important. I know to a lot of you, too. You want good coffee. This is a great premium product. It'll get delivered to your door. You can sign up for the coffee club, and it'll ship it right to you every month, hassle-free. That's what I'm set up with. You should get set up with it, too. Wake up with America's coffee, Black Rifle Coffee. Visit BlackRifleCoffee.com slash buck and receive 15% off your order. That's BlackRifleCoffee.com slash buck for 15% off. BlackRifleCoffee.com slash buck. All right, we're back with Ovik Roy from the uh, Foundation for Research on Equal Opportunity, where he is the president. He is a healthcare expert, legitimately, actually has an MD, which I'm always very impressed by. People in the media generally, you know, they think that a one-year journalism degree is is a fancy thing. Um, Ovik, Kamala Harris is talking about replacing all private health insurance. Now, I I had always thought, and and it and it makes sense at least when you when you first run the numbers on it, that the one thing that makes the Democrat goal impossible of of single payer or Medicare for all uh, of that system is that you're going to have to tell ninety percent of people who have private health insurance, sorry, your plan is gone. Is that the the bulwark against this that we would like it to be? And and if not. How, how would a president, President Warren Harris Sanders implement this vision as you see it? Like, what, how do we know that this is actually happening? Well, first of all, it's not 90% of Americans who have private health insurance. It's more like 60% of Americans have private health insurance. 40%. I'm sorry, 90% who have coverage, right? Yeah, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, for, you know, 90% have health insurance. Yeah, of the 90% who have health insurance, 60% have it through, the, uh, through uh, private insurers, and 40% have it through the government. So, for example, the people who are on Medicaid, the people who are on Medicare. Medicare is basically a single-payer insurer. Um, that's why they call it Medicare for All. People who are on the VA, people who are on uh, active-duty military, Defense Department health care. So almost half of the covered population is already getting some form of government-involved health care. Yeah, I mean, yeah, 40%. So that's, that's the thing. So, you know, th- that's... That's what, they're, that's what they're trying to build on, and, and that's why when they, they say Medicare for all, because Medicare is single-payer health care, and there are, you know, 70 million people on Medicare, uh, and there are another uh, 
60 million people on Medicaid. Um, and then there's the 10 million on the VA and, and, and then the 5 million or, or whatever the number is. I can't remember exactly for, for active duty military. It's a lot of people, if you add it all up, who are already on government run health care. So we don't have this free market system. That's the first thing to appreciate. But you're right that when Kamala Harris says, oh, yeah, you know, let's eliminate your private insurance and replace it with government insurance, that's, uh, yeah, maybe some people on the left are, are, are looking forward to that uh, that time when they can trade in their private insurance for government insurance. But lots of other people are not. Um, and, and, and so, yes, I don't think that single-payer in that sense is likely. But, as we know, that hasn't stopped Democrats from expanding the reach of government to have a public option, say, or to decrease the eligibility age of Medicare from 65 to 55, and all these kind of chip-away incremental kind of things that they can do to expand the reach and role of government insurance. So just because single-payer can't be achieved in one fell swoop, that doesn't mean that uh, conservatives are in the clear. And again, you can't beat something with nothing. The the healthcare system in America is legitimately broken. It's legitimately ex- extremely expensive. And conservatives can't just sit around and say, oh, well, we're against socialism. The socialism is happening right now in terms of the in, in insane profits that companies are making by basically being federally licensed monopolies instead of competitive markets. Who are the bad guys in this? Well, there's <laughs> there's lots of bad guys. I mean, people people beat up on the drug companies a lot. I mean, who else goes on that list? Uh, I put the hospitals at number one. Because mainly, if you think about what, what we spend on healthcare in America, about a third of it is hospital spending, about 15% of it is drugs, and another 20% is doctors. Uh, I don't think doctors are the bad guys generally, though there, there, are, there are some bad apples in the, in the medical profession. We have to be honest about that. But really, the hospitals and the drug companies are, well, that's half the spending. And if we actually were able to do something about those two pieces, we do a lot to make healthcare more affordable. And I will say the Trump administration has been really smart and savvy about how they've tried to reduce the cost of prescription drugs. They, there's a lot of stuff that they're doing that I think deserves a lot more attention and praise from conservatives than I think has been appreciated. On the hospital side, an Indiana Republican congressman named Jim Banks from Northeast Indiana just put out a bill called the Hospital Competition Act, which is a terrific bill that really tries to tackle the problem of regional hospital monopolies, which have merged with other you know, crosstown rivals to build these, these big monopolies where they can basically tell insurers, we're going to jack up the price of a knee replacement by 10% this year, and you have to eat it because the insurer doesn't have any bargaining power because the insurer can't send its patients to another hospital because there is no other hospital. One hospital system owns all the hospitals in a community. So that's become a huge problem, and that's why private health insurance has become a lot more expensive than Medicare and Medicaid. The government, for, for all of its flaws, you know, you can't, you can, you know, you can't be, you can't dictate prices to the government. The government dictates prices to you, right? Whereas for the private insurers, they don't have that uh, that same ability. So private insurance is steadily getting more and more expensive, and that's why you're seeing more and more Americans say, you know what? Uh, I, I used to believe in the private sector system, but I'm 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 more open-minded about single payer now because I'm sick of getting uh, higher premiums and, and, and a flat paycheck every month. What does Trump need to do going into what's you know what's going to be a highly contentious election? We've only got about a minute, yeah. Ovik, but what's your minute elevator pitch for the president on what the, what the GOP Trump plan 
for healthcare, which you admit is expensive and problematic, what it needs to be. He's got to do what he's doing on drug prices for every sector of the healthcare system. There needs to be a Trump blueprint to lower the cost of hospital prices, a Trump blueprint to, to lower the cost of physician office visits, a Trump blueprint to lower the cost of lab tests, medical devices. You do that. You have a real plan to attack all the ways in which federal policy have distort, distorted these markets and driven up prices. You're going to have something really strong and really persuasive to talk about that's a lot less disruptive than single payer, but has a lot of the benefit, purported benefits in terms of cost savings. Ovik Roy, everybody, as advertised, he is the man on this issue. President for the Foundation for Research on Equal Opportunity. Freeop.org is his site. Ovik, we all know more about single payer than we did when we started this interview. So thank you so much, my friend. Always good to have you on the show. Thanks, Buck. Team, whoo, man. I'm going to let the class out for a minute here. Catch your breath. We'll come right back in a moment. Stay with me. Communities of color are usually much further to the left than white liberals because racism, colonialism are, we understand through lived experience in a way that many don't understand that these are issues that are part of a capital, a hyper-capitalist framework. You know, black folks are descendants of slaves that were imported, quote unquote, by slave owners to the United States for the explicit purpose of cultivating crops. And it was predicated on on white supremacy and racial superiority, but we have to understand that white supremacy exists for a reason. There's so much that we have to uh, we can delve into there. Obviously, that's AOC Alexandra uh, Ocasio Cortez, who is speaking in the the leftist lingo that unfortunately has has become to dominate the faculty lounges of many college campuses. And it is now, with the rise of, quote, woke journalism, is now increasingly commonplace in newsrooms and for major websites. And there are just these these very um, overwrought, historically problematic, or at least uh, unfinished, uh, selective in their discussion of, of capitalism, colonialism, any of these things, uh, but these phrases that are used really in place of any thoughtful discourse on these issues, um, that's and by the way, even the word discourse, they use it on the left so much. You can I can tell what someone's politics are now. I mean, this is maybe a, a good way of getting in and getting into this. I can tell what someone's politics are based on the words they use to talk about issues. I don't mean the words they use to describe a position. I mean, I can just hear someone discussing something. And, for, you know, for example, people who, who, who use the phrase uh, communities of color frequently are going to be on the left. People who will talk about a legacy of colonialism in the year 2019 are going to be on the left. I mean, there's all these different things. And there's even more instructive and, and I think specific examples than that. Just the certain words, the, the usage of justice without any explanation for what kind of justice word what what does that mean and this is why you'll hear me say on this show frequently what do they mean by that what does that mean they use words without establishing the underlying meaning of what they're saying or or without any clarity 
right? They're going for an emotional response. They, they know that this is, this is setting off certain synapses in the brain, right? Certain firing of neurons happens when people hear buzzwords on the left, they immediately start to think this is a friendly, this is a person that I agree with, and this, these are good things, these are things that I like. And, and it's, it's an essential part of understanding left-wing communication. This is why I, I use these terms like uh, you know, intersectionality and we talk about thing, people being woke and we talk about dead naming. And I try to familiarize you with leftist jargon, one, to expose usually how just thoroughly inter- intellectually bankrupt it all is. I mean, just these ideas and concepts fall apart under the weight of their own contradictions. That's that's one reason why, but also to understand that they are really creating their own really professional language for mobilization and activism. And that this is now creeping into our politics. And that's why I get so uh, agitated over things like undocumented migrant, which is the latest, you know, they're just undocumented people moving through who want work. That's a long way from illegal alien. And there there are a lot of steps in between. But that change in language is a conscious choice. Do not just let that slip. Do not all of a sudden decide that, you know, you're you're going to, to give in to however they want you to speak about these things because your word choice matters. Your word choice matters. And and that little rant from Ocasio-Cortez saying that communities of color are, quote, much further to the left than white liberals because of racism and colonialism. First of all, uh, that's not true. I mean, I, you, this is where you have to get into, well, what is further to the left how? I don't, think there, I don't think there is a further to the left than what you're hearing from some open socialists who are you know, white socialists in the Bernie Sanders mold. Uh, what she's really addressing is that there is an increasing radicalism of thought within some communities of color because they're being constantly told. And this is this is combustible. This is dangerous. They are being told by the media, uh, you know, whether it's media commentators who are minorities themselves or who are white liberals who are exploiting these narratives for their own purposes, whether it's ratings or just virtue signaling. But communities of color are increasingly being told in this country by the media and by politicians like AOC that white supremacy is on the rise, that the president is a white supremacist. Hakeem Jeffries, who is a member of Congress, referred to the president of the United States as the grand wizard of Pennsylvania Avenue. This is incredibly destructive. This is incredibly divisive in a way that you and I might be able to say, well, these are just reckless politicians and demagogues doing what they do. But some people, and I would argue a lot of people will hear this and think, wow, the other side on this, which is effectively in their version of events in the left wing communities of color uh, version of this narrative, the other side is is white male Republicans. That that's that's the other that is what is being otherized here actively. And, you know, you see this celebratory tone at the the demise of the white male majority. The media celebrates this very openly and they encourage people to think increasingly in terms of racial power disparities and they encourage non-white minorities 
to use their group status, their, their group identity, as a means of achieving greater power over the other. This is not going to lead to good things. This is not going to lead to happy places. But this is now central to the left-wing Democrat uh, approach to politics. To mobilize, as and now, now I'm saying it because I brought it up before communities of color, to mobilize the minority population in this country as a racial and ethnic block against the Republican, predominantly but not entirely white, majority is a racializing of politics that is not is not going to have any this is not going to end well this is not going to be positive for the country this is something that has to be undone this is a complete departure from the idea that this country is a it was founded on an idea yes it was imperfect yes in its time there was tremendous injustice that was done slavery there have been other injustices in this country's history too, Jim Crow, segregation. Um, but the basic idea of a country founded on an idea gives us at least the framework for not being a racially segregated or racially based caste system-like society. Right? We have that foundation in place to constantly mobilize non-white minorities for political and cultural purposes against the other, the white male conservative majority, uh, is to create a friction that I would argue undermines the most important shared principles and values of this country, which is that we are not supposed we are not defined by or or um, dictated by our skin color or by our ethnicity. We, we actually have free will, free choice, and we are all equal in the law and equal in the eyes of God. And that people should choose their destinies, their beliefs, their futures freely, not based on what they have been told by others. Ocasio-Cortez talking about a, a hyper-capitalist framework. These are big words used by people who don't understand big ideas. You're going to see a lot more of that on the left in this Democrat primary. These are people who pick and choose different aspects of history without understanding the fuller context. Because generally, on the left, you have some of the, the, the biggest demagogues on politics who are held up as being the leading lights of the progressive wing of the Democratic Party are not particularly uh, well-read and, and, and not insightful on any aspects of American life. They just know how to agitate. They know how to push buttons. They understand how powerful envy is when mobilized. They understand how powerful uh, class warfare can be in the hands of somebody who does not mind what they are tearing down or burning down in the process. Uh, take AOC seriously, because I assure you, despite her ignorance, her inability to grasp very important, very basic concepts of governance, the left will take her seriously and enough people will emotionally attach to her ideas that the the falsehood that is baked into into much, if not all of it, won't matter enough. Got more coming. Stay with me. Can America work productively towards a just and lasting peace between Israelis and Palestinians, in your opinion? By having an equal approach to dealing with both. Most of the things that have always been aggravating to me is that we have had uh, a policy that makes one superior to the other. 
and we mask it with a conversation that's about justice and a two-state solution when you have policies that clearly prioritize um, one over the other. Such as? Um, I mean, just our relationship really with uh, the Israeli government and the Israeli state. And so when I see Israel Institute um, law that, that recognizes it as a, as, a, as a Jewish state and does not recognize um, the other religions that are, that are living in it, and we still uphold it as a democracy in the Middle East, I almost chuckle because I know that if, you know, we, we, we say, we see that in, in any other society, we would criticize it. We would call it out. We do that to Iran. We do that to any other place that sort of upholds its religion. So that is your, your, your new and, and exciting to the left, uh, Congresswoman from Minnesota. Ilhan Omar, who's all, who's made quite a splash in a very short period of time uh, with her not-so-subtle implied homophobia and now with her commentary about Israel. I mean, this is somebody who clearly has a real problem with, with Israel, and, and that's, for a lot of folks, starts to get pretty close to sounding like anti-Semitism if they're not already there. Some of you are like, no, Buck, it, it is just anti-Semitism. Uh, but notice the way that she discusses this. And, and, you know, look, there's the foreign policy side of this, which maybe is not as interesting to you, interesting to you. But but the reason that the left does not like Israel, there are many reasons. Right. But the reasons why there is this and, and keep it. There are Democrats who are very pro Israel. I know that I'm really talking about the left here. This is where the separation of the apparatus of the Democratic Party and the ideological hard left there is a thing there. You know, you do have Democrats who are members of, of Congress, for example, who are at least outwardly very pro-Israel, even though they're pretty leftist on a lot of things. But the hard left of the Democrat Party, the kind of think progress, move on dot org types, the Ilhan Omars of the party are anti-Israel because to them in this ideology of post-colonialism intersectionality and social justice, these different concepts that the left holds as as really the, the, the primary uh, organizing narratives for our day-to-day lives, Israel is like a violator on all these different fronts in their minds. Israel is a colonial outpost in the Middle East. It is, it is white, even though, of course, when you talk about white and oppression, that white Jewish people in Israel, I think, would, would have a lot of a lot of things to say about a history of oppression and, and what that has been like and what that has meant globally and for a few millennia. Um, but, you know, the, the, the left just sees it in this very uh, this very straightforward and I would argue very wrong headed and and completely de- decontextualized context uh, or rather decontextualized fashion decontextualized context buck come on get it together uh where they're they're white they're colonial they're first world they're pro-american they're democracy we, therefore israel's a problem therefore it's oppressive and they also view islam even though it's the second largest religion in the world as a non-white and oppressed religion and really you know you you look at the way she talks about israel and, and that it's it's character of a jewish state she finds inherently problematic Meanwhile, think of all this. Think of all the states around the world, all the countries that are 
that are Muslim. And and there's no no one raises an issue with the idea of the Islamic Republic of and not just Iran. She goes to Iran, which is particularly crazy. But all these other countries are Islamic and no one's suggesting to them that they have to go through mass immigration, that they have to have uh, have, you know, Christianity put on the same footing in their national constitution or whatever as 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 Islam is. I mean, no one even discusses that. Somehow it's always acceptable for Islam to be the the only faith in a nation state. It, it and, and Islam is held to this very different standard, this this much lower standard than in our country, uh, Christianity and Judaism are in terms of its responsibility for the acts of its adherents. And and you, you hear Ilhan Omar talking about this and you just know that. This is what she's saying in an interview. I really want to know what she says when the when the cameras are not rolling. Uh, I've heard I, I've had many uh, Muslim, including Muslim leftist friends over over the years, and I've I've heard what they say about Israel when they're not when they think that they're around people that aren't going to repeat it. I mean, some of them don't necessarily know my politics. They would now, but many years ago when I was CIA, they wouldn't have known. Uh, and the way that they talk about Israel, it's clear that. It's not just they don't like Israeli policy. They don't like Israel. And with a lot of Muslims and a lot of the Muslim world, here's the truth. It's not just that they don't like Israeli policy or the state of Israel as a concept. It's that they don't like Jews. It's that they're anti-Semites. Anti-Semitism is rampant in the Muslim world. And with some of the the importation into this country of different beliefs and uh, people of of backgrounds where it's much more commonplace to be anti-Semitic, we are seeing... I believe a a growing problem here on the left of real nasty leftist anti-Semitism that the media is going to make excuses for because it crosses over with their oppression rhetoric about intersectionality and and you know women from the Islamic world like Ilhan Omar and all the rest of it. They're going to make excuses for leftist anti-Semitism. Mark my words. We'll be right back iPatriots.us is a new conservative alternative to liberal-based email services. iPatriots.us is secure, private, and includes more of what you want without all the ads and spam. With iPatriots, you get 30 gigs of cloud storage, larger attachment sizes, and much more. Your files and emails are safe with iPatriots premium antivirus, anti-spam, 256-bit encryption. iPatriots also won't sell your information or support liberal agenda items like a lot of those free email providers out there, okay? iPatriots.us is compatible with most of the mobile devices you can possibly find out there. So show you're a patriot. Go to iPatriots.us now. We got a new offer. Enter promo code BUCK. Sign up for month-to-month service today and get your first month free. You won't be charged until your second month of service at the specified month-to-month rate, and you can cancel at any time. Input your desired iPatriots email address during checkout. Again, iPatriots.us. Enter promo code BUCK for the first month free. Look, border crossings are down. There is an increase of those attempting to apply for asylum, but they're handing themselves over to the authorities. Two, statistically, immigrants are less likely to commit a crime than those of us that were born in the United States. So many lies, so little time. That's Democrat Congressman Gutierrez talking about uh, immigrants, illegal immigration. Let, let me take a chainsaw to this edifice of nonsense now, shall we? <sighs> 
It's just they, they just won't stop. They will not stop. This idea that crossings are down, therefore there is not a problem, is nonsense. This would be like saying, okay, let's look at the opioid crisis. If the opioid crisis had been going on for 30 years and you went from 70,000 dead a year to, let's say it's a huge drop-off, 35,000 dead a year, but you've already racked up a body count of how many deaths over that period of time. You've already lost how many loved ones, how many brothers and sisters, mothers and fathers, friends, family. That's a crisis and a continuing crisis. So, I mean, to say that because it's not the worst that it has ever been is to ignore the fact that just because something can be worse does not mean it is not a problem today. I hope my, my logic is, uh, I've explained that one with enough clarity here on, on the air. Um, we already have, and I was happy to see Tucker Carlson last night say this, 20 million illegals in the country. It's not 11 million, that's a joke. It's at least 20 million. And that's not me just picking a number out of thin air. There are uh, multiple math PhDs who've looked at the available hard data for illegal crossings and deportations over the last decade and the idea that we are somehow not up by at least double what they're telling us is crazy. I mean, this is, it, it, you look back in 2010, 11 million illegals. In 2005, 11 million illegals. Last year, 11 million illegals. No! I, I go speak to Border Patrol. You have 50,000 people at a time now, in a month, who are showing up at the border. I mean, 30,000 family units. That's, that's at least two individuals. Their family's not one. We haven't yet gotten to the point yet where people are identifying as, as a family. Um, so, you know, th this is just, this is, we are lied to and lied to and lied to so many times on this issue. And I think that the frustration, it, it, look, it boils over when I'm talking about this. It, it obviously comes out in, in my analysis of this. I think it's why. The White House today from their official Twitter account, as well as the president from his POTUS Twitter account, retweeted my article in The Hill from earlier this week on all of the scams that are being run. So Gutierrez is being disingenuous with his, oh, the numbers are down. Well, they're down from completely unsustainable, you know, illegal invasion of the 90s and the early two and, and the early 2000s. OK, yeah, they're down from that, but they're still unacceptably high. And there's already such a huge illegal population within the country that everyone who's showing up now is joining the ranks of an already unsustainable illegal issue. You know, this is like saying if, if you're if you're a million dollars in debt and you were spending fifty thousand dollars a month beyond your means and now you're only spending $25,000 a month beyond your means. And you say, well, Buck, it's no big problem. Look at how look at how far down it is. Yeah, but you already have a debt of a million dollars and you're still adding to it. We have 20 million illegals and they're still adding to the number in large numbers. And we don't even know what the real number is. Half a million visa overstays a year. 30,000 family units a month showing up at the southern border. That doesn't include unaccompanied minors and it doesn't include illegal single adult male crossers. Gutierrez is just full of it. He's just full of it. He either do, He's either just ignorant or he doesn't care. It's probably both. 
This notion that they're showing up to claim asylum, that's right. They claim asylum so they get into the interior of the U.S. and then they know that there will be no enforcement. Less than 1% of those who enter the United States claiming asylum are expelled from the country through deportation, but 90% of those who claim asylum do not qualify for it. So somebody explain those numbers to me. This is a massive backdoor into the United States. And any politician who tells you otherwise is a liar. A liar. Gutierrez is lying to you about this. And then on this issue, finally, of... By the way, it was pretty cool to get the... to have the POTUS account, which has 25 million followers, tweet out an article that I am the author of. Ah, That was nice. I liked that. High five. If you haven't read it, you got to check out my stuff on thehill.com on the written side, the editorial page there. Um, it's the, the crisis at the border is, is real and getting worse. And I just make this case to you. It, based on the numbers, based on the schemes and the fraud, and based on now the increasing medical concerns and costs on the system of all of this. So you've got surging numbers. Fraud, fraud, fraud and lies everywhere from the migrants who are coming in and medical costs that are about to get really, really heavy. You know, the, the, the smartest thing I could now walk somebody through what the loopholes are in our immigration system and, I, and, and they wouldn't be breaking the law necessarily. They're not breaking the law until they don't show up for their immigration hearing. I could walk somebody through that and, you know, essentially guarantee that they'll get entry in the United States and don't have to worry about having to leave. That's unacceptable. Completely unacceptable. But that's where we are. That's where the, the status quo has, that's what the status quo has become. Uh, and then this thing of Gutierrez about how immigrants are less likely to commit a crime than those of us who are born in the U.S. Uh, that's just not true. Um, it's only true if you make it about immigrants who are supposed to go through a screening process. When you add illegal immigrants into the equation, it is not true. And actually, I don't think that they should be conflating those two populations at all. Because the issue is not with legal immigrants. Legal immigrants are welcome. Legal immigrants are Americans. They listen to this show. God bless you and thank you for giving me your time. Illegal immigrants are breaking the law. And they're doing so in a systematic fashion with the assistance of the Democratic Party and a left-wing media that is all is open borders and all but name. That's what's happening. And that's why I get frustrated when people say things like immigrants are less likely to commit crimes than those of us who are born in the, the U.S. Uh, that's dodging the issue. Are illegal immigrants, apart from the crime of crossing into the country and the document fraud and the lying to federal officers and the, uh, you know, Social Security fraud and the welfare fraud, all those things that also happen in large numbers in illegal immigrant communities. They, they pretend like it doesn't, but it does. Apart from all those violations of law, how many are actually in gangs, sexually assaulting people, uh, murdering people, whether they're part of you know, MS-13 or some other gang? Uh, you know, that's, that's, an, uh, that's the statistic that I would like to see. And it's so interesting, isn't it, that the Democrat, the, the knee-jerk reaction from the Democrats is always that illegals are better than Americans. This is a mantra. This is a, a recurring theme in the Democrat Party, that, that illegals are better than the Americans of all ethnicities and backgrounds, right? We have quite a, quite a diverse 
population in America, and they're saying illegals who are predominantly from, but not entirely, Mexico and Central America, are better than Americans. It just seems a strange position to take for an American political party. But they understand that they will be the only political party with any power in this country if this continues. That's why they are all in on illegal immigration. And I I keep saying this, and I, I hope somebody with the ability to get big Democrats, like big Democrats, uh, big Democrats won't, you know, they won't come on and debate me or argue with me. I mean, it's just, it's, I'm too risky, right? What's the upside versus the, the downside is they get intellectually filleted like a fish. The, uh, the upside for them is pretty minimal. So I can't get, but somebody who is in a position to get a Democrat on the hot seat, you know, get Nancy Pelosi or get, they just have to ask them to answer this question. Why shouldn't Democrats before illegal immigration. They'll say, oh, because we want people to respect our laws. No, 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 no. That's that's not enough because they're not respecting our laws. Why shouldn't illegal immigrants just come into the country as they please or as they call them undocumented immigrants? Why shouldn't they? I can give you a whole bunch of reasons. Sovereignty, rule of law, political cohesion, strain on resources, cultural assimilation. I'll go down the whole list. Democrats reject all of that. Tom Brokaw said something about learning to speak English, and Brokaw is not going to be welcome to the country club anymore. That's right. Brokaw got his hand caught in a little mouse trap. He said a little something naughty because he said you should learn English. You know, he's, he stubbed his toe big time with that one, didn't he? Ouch. Not supposed, not supposed to tell people that. Not supposed to say that uh, assimilation means learning English. If if assimilation does not mean learning English, what does assimilation mean? Does any, anybody want to try that? I do object when I voted in New York City to the ballot being in five or six languages. I do object to that. I think that's a problem. Language is not about skin color. It's not about ethnicity. It's about national cohesion and communication and shared culture and values. Those things all matter. Democrats will just throw that all aside. They'll throw any of this stuff aside because ultimately all that really matters to them is this relentless, endless pursuit of power. And illegal, they've, switched, they've switched the script on illegal immigration. They used to pretend that they were the protectors of the working class from illegal immigrant competition for jobs. That's not where their bread is buttered anymore. Now they are all about illegal aliens. I've been telling you about Snippy.com and the more stories you see about the way that Facebook and these other giants of the Internet treat your privacy, treat your data, and also push for progressive agenda items all the time, it's time for you to check out Snippy.com, all right? You don't have to deal with that other stuff anymore. Thousands of my listeners have already joined Snippy.com, and they're expressing their opinions and stirring up lively conversations. Snippy's an unbiased social media platform. It's all about conversation and community. It not only encourages freedom of expression, but guarantees its users the ability to discuss topics freely without suppression from administrators. It's a place where everyone is free to express their thoughts and share their opinions. It is totally free to join, open to everyone. So join us at Snippy.com. Let your opinion matter. No shadow banning and no suppression of conservative thought ever. Now, with an updated user interface and exciting new features, also available in the Apple App Store and now available for Android. Snippy, snippy.com, your new alternative social media. Check it out. 
cut a, a deal. wall is an immorality. It's not who we are as a nation. It's an old way of thinking. I hate the wall. I think it's immoral. I think it's wasteful. Are we a country that puts a wall between ourselves and an allied nation? A wall is an immoral uh, symbol for our country. I mean, this is just stupidity. I have very little patience these days for politicians who go on TV and say that a wall is an immorality, that a wall won't work, all these different, all these different things that they, um, they bring together and, and, and they say they, they bleat these talking points. Four legs good, two legs bad. Some of you will catch that reference. That's our, that's our random reference for today. Let's see who, let's see who catches it. Uh, it's based on a homework assignment I gave the team a long time ago. So here's what happens. They go on TV, they say all of this. The American people, unfortunately, are still very influenced, at least those who care about this, by what they see on TV. And so some of them will believe that walls don't work and that a wall is immoral. A lot of them will believe that Trump's willingness to hold up the government uh, or hold up funding for part of the government because of the desire for a wall is irresponsible and whatever. And so the Democrats get their way, even though this is all built upon Stupidity. I mean, this is all built upon falsehood. A wall is not immoral. If a wall is immoral, then border patrol is immoral. If border patrol is immoral, we should have open borders. This is not hard. The left cannot win this argument. They are wrong. They do not believe in in helping to secure the border. They like the status quo, which is not an open border. It is a porous border. It is 30, 40, 50,000 illegals a month pouring in month after month after month. Anybody who tells you that an equivalent number are leaving this country to go back to Honduras or Mexico, which had been the that's the story you'll sometimes hear. Oh, well, the economy got bad. There's an outflow bull. These people are idiots. A lot of stupidity out there, a lot of very self-serving stupidity, unfortunately. But that's what you are coming across uh, on the left and in these Democrat circles where they say these things. And we still have not dealt with the underlying issues here. We still have not handled the problem of illegal immigration as it is presented to us today. And, you know, I, I played that uh, that Tom Brokaw thing for you, and it's it's pretty amazing how much they jumped in. Remember, Tom Brokaw said that maybe illegals, or rather maybe some immigrant communities, the Latino community, needs to work a little harder at assimilation. You know, and, and I, I mean, I would go as far to say, I don't want, I don't think that ballots should be printed in other languages. I think that, I don't think that schools should be taught in other languages. Language is an essential part of social and political and nation state polity, political union cohesion. Okay. Essential. It is indispensable. How we communicate is also a function or rather also affects how we see everything around us. That people are opposed to this notion just goes to show you how little they really care about a durable assimilation that would be happening over the course of, of you know year after year because we're bringing in a million legal immigrants a year, making them green card holders, permanent residents, etc. But here's what happens, you know, here's what happens to somebody like Tom Brokaw when they decide that he said something bad. NBC calls him out. Play play uh, play thirteen. A former longtime anchor of this broadcast is in the news tonight for comments he made Sunday on Meet the Press. The criticism was widespread and almost immediate. Lester, tonight at NBC News, spokesman tells me, quote, Tom's comments were inaccurate and inappropriate, and we're glad he apologized. 
How could it be inaccurate to say that people should try harder at assimilation? That's an opinion. How could it be inaccurate to say that people should learn English in this country? That's an opinion. It's a good opinion, by the way. But notice how they they go to this place of not just opposing opposing what Tom Brokaw said. Look, I give credit to people when they say smart things, whatever, whoever the person may be. If they say something that's correct or smart, I'm going to say they are uh, it is correct and they are smart. So Brokaw is forced here to, you know, to, to eat a little humble pie, eat some crow. Why, why can't we have this discussion? This is part of why a big part of why Trump won. We're not allowed to discuss assimilation. We're not allowed to discuss a national. Uh, discuss a. Na- <laughs> I need to speak English too. Apparently, discuss a national language. We're not allowed to do that. How can that be shut off? How can we tell ourselves that we are having a real discussion, a real open debate about our immigration policy, when anything you say about assimilation that takes into account the possibility that maybe immigrants have a role here, illegal immigrants uh, have a role here too. Maybe all immigrants have a role here too. That's not to say that there aren't some immigrants who are doing everything and they're, you know, they're great at being Americans. Obviously there are a lot of them, but I'm sure there are some who come here and think of this more as like a jobs program and maybe a soup kitchen. They don't really feel some attachment to this country. You know, English proficiency should be a precondition. It's a precondition, at least it's on paper a precondition in places like Sweden that have had very open door policies for asylum seekers in recent years, much to the social disunity now of that country. And a lot there's a lot of dysfunction that has come from that policy, by the way. And the the government is actively in some of those uh, Norse countries, um, the northern European be a more proper way to put it, I guess. Uh, Scandinavians, the word I was looking for, uh, they realize that they've made some mistakes. But we're not allowed to talk about it. Let me let me tell you this. Any issue of politics where people of good faith would want to have a debate and they're not allowed to tells you a lot. And that is the case when it comes to Im- assimilation, immigration, and English as our national language. It's a big problem. Because what non-believers fail to understand is that calling a dream crazy is not an insult. It's a compliment. Don't try to be the fastest runner in your school or the fastest in the world. Be the fastest ever. Don't picture yourself wearing OBJ's jersey. Picture OBJ wearing yours. Don't settle for homecoming queen or linebacker. Do both. So that's one of the inspiring Nike commercials that that great American company puts out on a a fairly regular basis. Uh, look, Nike is one of the premier, not just American, but global brands, right? Nike, the goddess of victory, Nike. A pretty amazing story behind it, too. This guy just realized that nobody was making nobody was making good running shoes, which you would think would be a market that would have been pretty well tapped into back in whatever it was, the 60s, I think. Maybe it was in the 50s, I forget. Uh, but this guy decided to make better running shoes and now you got nike which is obviously a huge international conglomerate but i bring it up because once again we have the pressure the the pressure from the social justice left forcing a company to bend on an issue that is absolutely absurd Uh, you have muslims demanding 
on, on a change.org position with, with 14,000 signatures demanding that the Nike Air Max 270 shoe change the logo because it's it's looks like it's supposed to be kind of a stylized Air Max, but it looks somewhat, and I actually know enough Arabic script to know this, it looks vaguely like Allah. Um, it's not in Arabic script, mind you, but the way they've stylized uh, our script, it looks kind of, I mean, not much, but kind of like it could possibly be uh, Allah to some eyes. And they expect Nike to change this because to write the name Allah on the bottom of a shoe, which in the Muslim world, the bottom of the shoe is considered a grave insult. This is why when that Iraqi, who, by the way, is a member of parliament now, oh yeah, when that Iraqi threw his shoe at George W. Bush back in 2007 or 8, I think, 2008, uh, it was a, a grave insult in the Iraqi culture. You know, if you show someone the bottom of your shoe, that's essentially our equivalent of showing them only a single finger in the middle of your hand. Um, but, you know, this is where I think that Nike is, you know, it, it, it might it might end up having to change this. A spokesperson said, Nike respects all religions. We take the concerns seriously. The Air Max logo was designed to be a stylized representation of Nike's Air Max trademark. It is intended to reflect the Air Max brand only. Any perceived meaning otherwise is unintentional. You know, they don't mean Allah, but what's even more interesting is notice how there's this tendency, and it's common in Islam, to force non-believers to bend to the unreasonable expectations of many in the Islamic faith. As in, we have to use the language that they demand. We can't have depictions of Muhammad in cartoons or on South Park, even if it's in a bear costume. It's the only religious faith in the world where if you do that, not only will they sign petitions, but there are threats of violence. We haven't been talking much about radical Islam in a while, but Here's a, an early prediction that I can assure you we will have to revisit. Uh, radical Islam is still very much with us around the globe and is going to surge once again as a major problem for us. It is just a question of when. Roll calls up next. Team Buck, it's time for Roll Call. Okay, roll call. Let's take it from the friend zone to the end zone. Because I, 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 it's game time. Uh, something like that. I think that's how the lyrics go. I'm wondering, I didn't, let's, let's see how many of you caught the references from yesterday. Uh, let's see as we get into our roll call. Facebook.com slash Buck Sexton if you want in on this action. Which is always fun for those of you who, who get in. You're like, yes, Buck, I... Will you really read my stuff on the air? Will, will people across the nation hear my words from your lips? Indeed. Facebook.com slash Buck Saxon. All right. Jennifer writes, Buck, not sure if you've seen the hashtag Where's Ruth on Twitter, but people are starting to wonder where RBG is and whether her health condition is in fact more serious than thus far reported. It has been some time since she was seen in public and rumors are running wild. All her upcoming engagements are canceled. What are your thoughts? Of course, we wish only good health to Justice Ginsburg, 
but the silence on her condition is concerning. We know she's absent from oral arguments. Is she participating in court matters? Are her clerks filling her role? Why is no one reporting on this? Shields high, Jen. Jen, I think that there, I saw some reporting yesterday from some uh, reporters I know here in D.C., at least one that I know of in D.C., saying that she's been seen uh, working out with a trainer. And I'm being serious about that. That was the report that I saw in D.C. So I, I think she's okay and, and in recovery. I don't think that there's any imminent health concern for Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And as uh, as moral and decent conservatives and human beings, we always wish uh, any of our fellow Americans, uh, or anyone for that matter, the, the best when it comes to their health. Uh, David writes, hey, Buck, back after a small sabbatical. Good luck with the beard. And you should check out Ripper Street on Netflix. Check you later, David Doc. Uh, Ripper Street, huh? Is that like a Jack the Ripper thing? I'm enjoying Peaky Blinders so much. I'm in the last few episodes. And you know it's a great show. When you have this concern about what are you going to do when the show ends because you think the show is so fantastic, that's kind of where I am with Peaky Blinders. I'm just like, oh, I want to keep watching, but I want to save it. You know, it's like that last slice of pizza. You're like, I want to save it for tomorrow, but I want to have it now because it's delicious. So indeed, was that that probably? I got a little close. Sometimes I get a little close to the mic, and if I hear it back later, it sounds a little creepy. So uh, I should probably not do that. Uh, try to give a little effect, a little theatricality here in the Freedom Hut for your edification and, and entertainment. Well, really just for your entertainment. Caroline, hey, Buck. There's an important story out there receiving very little attention. The Mexican gas crisis. Apparently, Mexican gangs have been siphoning gasoline off the pipelines and the government has shut the pipelines down. The only way gas can be transported now is by truck, which is way more inefficient and inexpensive. The lines are huge, people are running out and can't get to work, and their economy is being crushed. What will this mean for the immigration crisis and the wall? I'd love to hear your take on this Shields High. You know, uh, this is, thank you so much for bringing this to my attention. Um, I am not aware of of this, uh, although I know it is, it, it is happening. Uh, as I do a quick Google search, looking up what you're talking about, yeah, that there's a fuel crisis in Mexico. Um, I, I didn't know about this. This is really interesting, though, because in countries where there is a natural resource wealth and there is an active, either organized, a very active organized crime element or even an insurgency, it's a very bad sign for the stability of that country when the criminal group, whether it's an insurgent or terrorist group or a just a, a organized crime cartel-like organization, when they go after state resources, you got a big problem. You know, there's, it's one thing when they want to run their illicit, uh, their illicit schemes, right? They want to do uh, drug running, gun running, prostitution, human trafficking, all those things. Those aren't businesses, or at least they're not supposed to be, businesses that the state is in. But when they're going after the lifeblood economically of the state itself, that's very concerning. It's, it's the truth in Nigeria. Uh, there, was a whole, uh, there was a whole movement, actually called the Movement for the Emancipation of the Niger Delta. Um, or the, It's essentially an insurgency movement in the Delta region of the Niger River in Nigeria that wants a greater share of the oil wealth because it's a very impoverished area and the money just goes to the federal government. And there's tremendous corruption there. But they go right for the oil wealth, and they also 
will uh, engage in oil bunkering where they will try to get access to the oil through pipelines. And there's actually there are actually some photos of people doing this. And once in a while, somebody makes the very unwise decision when they're when they're whacking at an oil pipeline with hammers with buckets out to engage in this oil bunkering. And this is a th- if you look this up online, you'll see it in Nigeria. I think in one instance they lost it was in the three digits. I can't remember if it was 100 or 300, but I mean, people just immolated in a Nigerian uh, oil ball of fire. And it's because they had their buckets out at the pipeline smoking a cigarette. Very, very unwise for everybody in the vicinity of that pipeline. So I will, this is a great heads up. And by the way, all of you should always feel like if you don't hear me talk about a story, you know, I I appreciate it when you send me the biggest headline on Fox News for the day, just because I I love the team spirit and the team effort. But I've usually got that covered just, just by way of making sure we're all using our time in the best possible manner. Um, But if you know of a story that I haven't hit, that you think is something the rest of of the team should hear, send it to my Facebook inbox. I and mean, we're in that inbox every day looking at, at pitches and stories and and all the rest of it. So don't be shy about that. And if I don't get to it, don't don't think that I'm not reading it. I just we got a lot of things to get to here over the course of the show. Okay, obviously that story really interested me, so I went on a bit of a a bit of a tangent there. Oh, I I want to make sure that I give you to give you the proper facts. Oil bunkering in Nigeria has killed as many in one incident in a pipeline explosion as 700 people. I thought it was 300 people. Uh, This was in 1998. A fireball shot up 100 feet into the sky and 700 people were incinerated. Wow. Uh, I thought 300 was maybe I was was going to go high. Nope, it was 700. Um, I spent some time in Sub-Saharan Africa, I never get to talk about it on the show. Maybe one day I'll be able to talk about it on the show. I probably have to check in on some things first. Uh, Sub-Saharan Africa is a, depending on where you are, very beautiful place or a very dangerous and depressing place. Okay, uh, next up here in the uh, Facebook box. David, right, Shields Highbuck podcast listener, on Kamala Harris's history of wanting to prosecute parents if their kids don't show up to school... We know what that was really about. If a kid doesn't show up, the school gets no money for that kid that day. Money for the school means money for the union, which goes to Democrat campaigns. And yes, it was intended as a stepping stone to criminalizing homeschooling for exactly the same reasons. Well, David, I definitely know that the state is very, in general, especially the more statist states, the very blue states, are opposed to and will do whatever they can to uh, knock down homeschooling. Okay, so so start with that. They don't like it for exactly what you said. Unfortunately, you only have to look at the numbers for the public school system in this country, and you get a very clear sense of just what's important in the Department of Education. And it is pensions, health benefits, and the hiring of non-teaching bureaucrats. That's what really moves the needle for the public school teach public school staff, I should say, in this country. They have hired a massive increase of administrators. Some do important things. A lot of them don't. A lot of them are just pushing paper around uh, for the local school district or for the superintendent's office or whatever. A lot of, you know, English as a second language teachers and tutors that have to come in. We all know what that's about. 
So uh, this is where you really the, the rubber really meets the road for the uh, teachers unions with funding. That's what they really care about. And so your point about people not wanting or rather Kamala Harris not wanting people to hold their children back from school because they don't get paid for that day. I don't know if that is true. But if that is accurate, then your theory is certainly very interesting, and I'd want to dig into that some more. Uh, but yes, the, the, the teachers' unions represent adults. They don't really represent kids. And I know people get very mad when I say that, but you know, it's never really about how to fix things for the kids. It's always shorter working hours, smaller class size, more money, more benefits. That, they'll say that that's also they can do a better job of teaching, but that's a pretty self-serving explanation for everything that the teachers' union is pushing for. And cue the angry emails from members of the teachers' union into my uh, inbox. All right, Leah. Listeners may want to switch to CastBox podcasts on CastBox. They are working, all available and playing. Leah, I hadn't. I don't even never. I've never even heard of CastBox pods. So, thank you for the heads up on that. You have taught me something new today, and. Uh, We'll have to check it out. Robert writes, second day without a Buck Sexton show on Stitcher. What's up? Oh, my gosh. Come on. Really? Producer Mike, I got to write an angry email to someone. Who do I write the angry email to, man? We've got to get the the podcast has to be up every day. I know it's not on you, Mike. It's the it's the tech side of this. But, you know, we, we do this incredible show. We got to be able to get. The hundreds and thousands of people, hundreds of thousands of people that are listening to be able to listen. Darn it. All right. Uh, that that frustrates me. Uh, John writes, all that jabbering about the Punisher was pure torture. And if you can't grow a beard without asking other guys for advice, you should just shave and shut up. Um, John, uh, you, you, you seem a little grumpy, my friend. I think that you would be better off not listening to this show. Uh, There are so many other shows for somebody of your temperament and obvious intellectual ability. Go listen to one of those shows then. That's fine. Good luck finding somebody more well-versed in the issues that we talk about and go listen to that show. You'll be looking for a very long time. But I wish you all the best. And uh, the profanity was unnecessary. Michael! I have the cure for global warming. Make it illegal for Democrats to exhale carbon dioxide. They can inhale all they want, but not exhale. Hmm. I'm not sure that that policy will work in action, Michael, but I like where your head's at. All right, I will... uh, Hold on a second. Uh, Alex, one more here. Buck, thanks again for your fantastic show. Um, I have a question. Where are the inspectors general? They just seem to be missing. Would you take some time to explain their function, how they're chosen, what they oversee, how many there are, and how long a typical or atypical, for that matter, investigation has taken historically? How many different active investigations are ongoing? So what do we know from them so far? I have so many questions. Shouldn't require a deep dive. Maybe just a well-executed racing dive in shallow waters. Thank you and Shields High. Alex. Alex, great questions, but it is the very end of the show. So eh, I'm saved by the bell on this one. I will try to address these at a later date, and I can certainly write you back and answer here on Facebook. That's it for the show today, everybody. Thank you for listening. Please tell your friends. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. Shields high. 
If you're in a relationship, there are a couple of important dates that require roses. You know what they are, birthdays, anniversaries. Oh, that's right, Valentine's Day, which is just coming up around the corner. So when you're looking for the biggest and best quality roses out there, check out my friends at 1-800-Flowers.com. Right now, you can get 18 red roses for $29.99, or you upgrade to 24 red roses for only $10 more. This is an unbelievable offer from 1-800-Flowers. 18 red roses for $29.99 or upgrade to 24 red roses, only 10 bucks more. So this is going to be a situation you need to jump and get on this now because bouquet prices are going to be going up soon. Take advantage today. When it comes to life special occasions, I don't settle for anything less than my authority for roses, 1-800-Flowers.com. To order 18 red roses for $29.99 or upgrade to 24 red roses for $10 more, Go to 1-800-Flowers.com, click the radio icon, enter promo code BUCK. Again, that's 1-800-Flowers.com, click the radio icon, promo code BUCK. Hurry, offer ends today.